Go ahead and open with prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to study your word and our recent celebration of your resurrection and, and just that we have a God that is alive and cares for us so much. And we just ask you to bless and anoint this time as we look at your word in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 21. We left off at 3, so we're going to start with 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. So we're going to stop there for just a moment. So we, we were saying that, he, that John saw the new <coughs> Jerusalem coming down from heaven, and we talked a little bit about that. We're going to see more of the new Jerusalem as we go, as we go on. But... He saw this, he saw that God would tabernacle with us from, last, from the last thing, last week. And he says, and God shall wipe away the tears from their eyes. He'll get rid of all our tears. Now, this may not mean tears of joy because those aren't, <laughs> you know, bad. But these are the tears of pain, the tears of sorrow. And we can't even begin to contemplate what it's going to be like to have no sorrow, no pain. He says he's going to wipe away, you know, he's going to eliminate all pain. You know, we cannot comprehend what that is. Can I interrupt you? Hmm? You just said, um, can you carry with me? Tabernacle. Dwell in us. Tabernacle literally means tent or dwell. Okay, so tabernacle isn't just the building. Not just the building. Matter of fact, when you talked about the tabernacle in the scriptures, they're talking about the tabernacle that was built in the wilderness that they carried around with them, the tent that was called the tabernacle. Okay. And it so when also God. means to tarry with you? Well, it means to dwell. God dwelt with his people. Uh, it, it literally means tent. It, so God lives <laughs> in us, and we are his tabernacle. They'll use temple every once in a while you know, in the New Testament. Uh, but the tabernacle to the Jews meant the place where God dwelt with them and they would go to. So God's going to wipe away, obliterate all the tears of our eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall be, be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. This is what we have to look forward to. The former things are passed away. And again, this is all the bad that that is out there because he's going to create a new heaven and new earth to be probably the best of everything in this world intensified. Uh, many writers have talked about you know how God will take whatever's good in this world and when it's recreated it will be better than it is even here. <laughs> and most of them will say many times better. You know, it's you know, beyond imagination. And I, I have very little imagination, so that's not hard to do. But I, knew, I know some people who have great imaginations, and it's even going to be better than their, their imaginations. Uh, I'm a very concrete <laughs> person. I'm, not, I don't, I'm not, I'm not into painting and trying to be creative. I, you know, mine is 
black and white. Uh, this is the way, the way things is. I'm an analytical person. But I do know people that have that really vivid imagination, and it's going to be greater than anything they can think of. Like and I have a good imagination. <laughs> <laughs> but just think, no more pain. No more physical pain, no more emotional pain, no more, you know, being disappointed, you know, because of your expectations being there. You know. well, I, can, I can imagine the physical pain will be gone because when we're in heaven, we won't have our earthly bodies. Is it true? But just the idea, I mean, some of us, the older we get, the more we just, you know, we feel lucky if we can move that day sometimes. <laughs> And I'm that way with my gout and my arthritis. You know, some days I'm just happy that I can get up and move without a lot of pain. And other days it's, you know, get out and do things with, with no pain. But especially I notice when the weather changes and the, and the fronts come through, I get sore in every joint. And you can tell when it's going to rain. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah. And we're going to have a time when the new heaven and earth are created. Hard to imagine, and yet it's what we look forward to. The day when there's no more pain, no more disappointment, no more things going wrong <laughs> as we think. That's why I'm glad for that very first statement, he's going to wipe away all the tears. And we won't be sorrowful for those who didn't make it because we'll also realize that they've got what they deserve. Right. We'll see it from God's perspective. You know, We won't be happy that they're not there probably, but we're not going to be in tears because, because of it. Because he's going to wipe them away. Well, he's going to wipe them away, but he's also going to tell us why yeah, we're going to see, because the way, remember, we've already seen the white throne judgment, and the white throne judgment is where they're going to be shown. Here's every time you rejected me, they're going to see that they had every opportunity to, to choose him, or some, at least some opportunity to choose them, and rejected him. And we'll see from God's perspective their choice. Because I look when Jesus said, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And you look at the list of things that they list, you know, I cast out demons, I, I fed the poor, I went, you know, I visited the, the, you know, took care of the sick, you know. And they did all the good religious things and everybody looking at them would say, wow, look at these great Christians that are going to hell. You know, because Jesus says, I never knew them. And so fervent prayer is what we need. When we see somebody who's not living for God, we can't say they're not saved. But the way I'm going to pray for them is, God, get them saved or get them correct in your, with you. Because if anybody had looked at my oldest son for the years that he was, you know, messing around with, said, you're not saved. Now, now I, I was very sure what, because just of how fervent he was for God in his early teens, I was pretty sure he was saved. And I'm going, okay, God, you know, let him hit rock bottom and he'll bounce back to, bounce back to you. And so, but we have to be careful because, as I've said, and it's kind of a joke, but it's not. When we get to heaven, there's going to be two things that are surprise us. Who is there that we didn't expect to see, and who isn't there that we expected to see. And it's very true, because we can't look at somebody's heart. We might find somebody who's a very disciplined person, and they're in the years. We knew them. They lived... You know, they came to church every Sunday. They, you know, seemed to know their Bible. They, they lived to what we thought was a Christian life, but they never knew God. They were religious, following a bunch of rules. And then there's going to be people who maybe not, didn't follow any of the rules, but they really had a relationship with God that we never knew about. And again, you know, in some cases, we kind of know when we know somebody most of their life. 
But how about these people you meet for just a short period out of their life? You didn't know them 20 years ago. You don't know where they came from. You don't know, you know where, where they're going. Why are they where they're, where they're at? Uh, so we had to be careful in our judging. Now sometimes, like, like I said, with my kids, I kind of look over their whole life and say, yes, I've seen this, I've seen that, I've seen when they've been, you know, where they've been strong or not strong. But even then, I don't know <laughs> in their own life. And I won't know until I get to heaven. I've done my job, I've taught them, I've, I've tried to guide them through the right decisions, but I don't know except by what I, what, what I see. And that's why James says, show me your faith without your works, but I will show you my faith with my works. Okay, and that's what James said. You know, if you don't have works, you can't prove your faith to anybody because there's nothing to show that you're living a Christian or, or, a, or a life in a relationship with God. But if you have the works, you can say, hey, I accepted Christ. Here's, my, here's the God working through me. And even then, you're not absolutely sure. But you're, if somebody makes the claim that they're saved and they live the life of being a Christian or as best they can, then you say, okay, you know. And there's certain people that when you meet them, you, your spirit just resonates because God is in you and God is in them. And you're going, this person, <laughs> I'm pretty sure, is saved. And I've shared this. I, I used to go on some business meetings when I worked for this one company. You know, and I hated the manager meetings because I was bored because all they wanted to do was drink and dance and party and all this stuff. And I'm going, okay, I've got to be here because I was told to be here, but God, show me some Christians. We would get together and there would be three or four Christians at this group and we'd be sitting at a table just enjoying God together. And the Spirit just brought us <laughs> together. And so that's part of discerning the spirits, getting to know, getting to understand. And even then... You know, like I said, the scariest verse to me is Jesus saying, many in that day will be told, depart from me, I never knew you. That's why uh, Paul told us, examine yourself to be, be sure that you're in the faith. Are you in a relationship with God or are you just following a bunch of ritualistic rules? And unfortunately, that is what mo a lot of people do. Even Christians get caught up in following ritualistic rules instead of, a relationship with Christ quite often. There are many in the churches, many, many and even good church, Bible teaching churches that will be in that ballpark. And there are some churches that aren't really teaching the Bible and there'll be the majority of their church that won't be going uh, because they're not, being, they're not being taught the Bible. But like I say, even in a good Bible teaching church, there's still going to be a lot of people in that church that are hearing the message so often and ignoring it that their heart gets cold and hard. And Greg Laurie has said it, and I don't think he was the original, but he said the, the, place, the easiest place to get a hard heart toward God in the scriptures is church. Because you hear it so often that you just start becoming, you know, old hat. It's just, it's what they talk about each week, and I'm just, I hear it so much, I'm bored with it, and, and you get that hard, hard heart. And if you know you have a soft, tender heart, you hear God's word, and you know that your, your life is changing, you don't have to, that's what Paul said, examine yourself. Make sure you're in the faith. If you can look, and this is why I, I mention at least once a year, usually around New Year's, you know, look at your life and see, are you moving forward with God? Are you closer to God today than you were a year ago? And the reason I use a year is just as I explained, you know, we don't really notice our changes over a short period of time. 
If you look back over a year and say, yes, I am <laughs> closer to God or you know, I'm more sensitive to what he wants, then you're making the right direction and you're most likely <laughs> following God. Uh, and this is what you do in business. You look for a, a line up in the profits, you know, uh, in the profit margin. We do the same thing in our, in our life. We need to be looking, are we moving upward with God? Am I moving in a stronger, closer relationship in him? Or am I getting colder toward him? And if I'm getting colder toward him, then I have to be careful and say, am I in the faith? Was, was I ever in the faith? And then go, yes, I was. And then, okay, let's get back. Let's well, get just, back. To me, it's just like some people... Sure, they may go to church, but they may not go to church that much, but they can be more of a Christian than people who do go to church. It can be. It's, it, it's a possibility. To, I mean, to me, my opinion, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. A Christian, I believe in just, I believe in church, but I believe in a Christian. It's believing in God. And if you believe in God, and to me, and study Him, but it's good to go to church, but if you don't, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. <laughs> I agree that that is true. You can be a Christian and not go to church. You're not going to grow very fast yeah. by not coming to church. You're going to be disobedient because God said, you know, uh, forsake not the assembling of yourself and so much more as you see the day approaching because we need each other to grow. And yes, you can be a Christian and live on a mountaintop and never, never come to church. Try to learn on your own. You will learn if you're really truly a Christian and listen to the Holy Spirit, but you will learn really slow and really hard because, like I say, even as much as I know the scriptures, I need other people. I need to be taught to help me get out of my limited thinking because if you're, if you're going to sit there and just say, well, I can be a Christian all by myself, you're going to have yourself stuck in a very narrow spot that's not going to break out because you're not being challenged to break out. Oh, lots of them. As I've said, if somebody's saying they're a Christian and they stop coming to church or don't go to church, I can almost guarantee from my experience that they will drift further and further away from God. Not saying they're not saved. They will drift. And if somebody leaves a church, okay, if you've been going to church and they drift away from church, I, that they're going to stop reading their Bible, stop worshiping God, Probably within two or three years has been what I have seen every time somebody pulls away from theirs. That doesn't mean God can't get back hold of them, but you see that. Because if you're not in fellowship, there's no accountability. And I'm, again, I'm not saying they're not saved or anything. And you're right, there are a lot of people sitting in churches that aren't saved and they're going to go to hell because they've rejected Christ and they've gotten a hard heart because they keep hearing him over and over and basically rejecting him. And God will tell you, if you keep rejecting him, and your message you're going to hear, you're going to get a hard heart, and he's just going to say goodbye. Yes. Well, I would actually tell them they should should very much go to church because that's what God says. Yes, you can be a Christian without coming to church. I didn't want to argue. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you can be a Christian without coming to church, but you're not going to be a very strong Christian. You're not going to have a lot of standards because you just don't have the accountability. You don't have the the growth and because I've been there. I pulled away from church, and, and I know how you lose the passion for God. You lose the desire to get into his word. You lose the, the, the accountability, all of that that goes into, yes? And that's why when people say, well, I, I worship God on the, on the lake or the mountain. So, yeah, yes, you can, but are you? Are you really worshiping God on your mountain or your lake? Because they're probably not.
It's just an excuse not to do what God has asked them to do. And the early church met every day to study and, and listen and teach. And this is why I like to do as many Bible studies as possible because they help us grow. They help us learn. And, and as I said, I listen to all these different pastors that I listen to so that I can be expanded on what I believe because otherwise I'd be stuck in this little narrow place of whatever I believe and it would never be challenged. And every once in a while I get challenged. I'll hear something I've never heard before or, and I have to dig in and check out what they said. And sometimes I find out that they're way out in left field. Other times I find out that they're right on and it, it's expanded my understanding of something. Because if you're sitting there trying to go with just what you understand, you're, you're limiting yourself. And this is why we get together. This is why we get a teacher. This is why we, you know, I encourage everybody to talk amongst yourselves. Tell people what you're learning because it's important. And, and I've said it over and over, and I'm not sure people believe me, but some of the greatest things I've heard about the Bible have come from people who have been saved for just a very short time. Everything to them is new. And they haven't been taught how to look at it. And all of a sudden, they'll come, God showed me this. And, and, it's, and you listen to it and it says, oh, yeah, that's true. You never, never thought about it that way, but it, it's very true. And we've all been, th been there where somebody has said something that is very new to us and, you know, and made us open up how we think. And because we can get closed in, we can get taught how to read a verse and say, this is what this verse means, and this is the only thing that, and then you get somebody who shares a different light from it or a different slant from it, and it's like, wow, that means so much more than I thought it did. And it's not saying we were wrong in the first place, it's just God's word is, you know, so much larger than anything we can get. And I have said it and others have said it. You can read the same chapter probably for the entire year. You probably read the same verse and find something new in it over and over and over again because it is a living word that all of a sudden gets applied in different ways sometimes. And it would be hard with one verse, but you'd probably do it. <laughs> but definitely one book. I've had people tell me they've been studying the same book for months. I'm going, okay, well, I understand how you could do that. I'd, I'd like to move on to the rest of the scriptures and get a more rounded picture. But I can also understand how you could study one book and, and a very powerful book, especially if it's something like Ephesians or Galatians or, or even Romans or Hebrews, something with a lot of meat in it. You, can, you could stay in those books for probably your entire life and still never mine everything that's out of it. And I've been reading and studying for... You know, for the 44 years that I've been saved, and I still find new things all the time. And, and every once in a while, I, you know, I, I purpose to read through the Bible every year, and I'll read a verse, and I'm going, when did that verse get put in there? I, never, I don't think I've ever read it before, and I, I know that I have, but it just didn't jump off the page like it did at that time. And so we've, this is why coming together is so important, because we need the strength of one another especially when times start getting hard, and they're going to start getting harder and harder here in America for us very soon. And if we don't start learning to lean on one another and, and get the strength from one another and accountability for one another, it's going to be real easy to turn, from, turn away from him. You know, when you're looking at true persecution, and I'm not talking about what we consider persecution in America, well, they made fun of me or they teased me and I'm not feeling happy because they're persecuting me. And I'm talking about you lose your job because, you're, because you are a Christian, not, and not even just because you said anything at work, but just because you're a Christian. 
you know, or you pay with your life. You know, that is when it's going to be hard to say, yes, I'm a Christian. And in many countries, especially Muslim countries, this happens. You become a Christian, nobody will come to your, your establishment to buy anything. Nobody will hire you. And you will go broke because you became a Christian, if, you, if not literally pay with your life. And it's coming. We in America have been fortunate up till now to not be persecuted. And there's many around the world that don't understand because Jesus said they hated me, they will hate you, and they don't, under, don't understand how American Christians don't get persecuted. And we've been very fortunate in America. Our country started as a Christian country, and, but it's quickly moving away from it. And we need to be ready. We need to be prepared to suffer and realize that it's God's will that we do. And that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for people who really, truly don't, you know, really hard for those who are bought into the prosperity gospel. Follow God and you're going to be rich, rich and healthy and, and everything's going to be right. And when, when that gospel starts meeting persecution, it doesn't match. We're all rich in our, and, and truly rich if we, if we realize that Jesus said, put your treasure in heaven and not on earth. And we don't, all, we don't have a clue what we have in heaven sometimes, you know, because of what we've said, what we've done, who we've, who we've touched, who we've, you know, who, how many people have been saved because we said one little word that maybe they didn't respond to at that time, but we planted a seed or watered the seed, and later on they became saved. Uh, and this is important for us. God looks at it from the heavenly perspective. And we're told some, wa uh, some plant the seed, some water, and others get the pleasure of actually getting them to say the prayer with them and, and seeing them come. All those people, though, have a part in that person coming to Christ. So there may be 10, 20, 30, 100,000, who knows, people that you've ministered to and planted seeds that you may not ever be aware of that you did. And it may have been just living a Christian life in front of them and never, you may not have said much, but they looked at you and said, well, I know that person's a Christian and I think they're a little weird, but man, they don't have problems. And I know I've planted that seed with many people because that's been coming out at times in my business. Well, how could you stay so calm during, you know, during that time? And that calmness that we go through problems with as Christians is a seed that plants in their head because, it, you know, especially if they know you're a Christian, it's going to be Maybe it's their Christianity that's done that. <laughs> uh, maybe they'll open up and talk to you. Maybe they'll talk to somebody else in the future. You never know. But all the little seeds that are planted and watered that we will not know until we get to heaven. Other people you know, know have done a lot of different evangelism and, and, and everything, and they know they've got a few people that they've asked Christ and the Lord. And as a Sunday school teacher, I've had the opportunity to pray with a lot of kids because they would get the gospel. And I was, I was, you know, I've had parents tell me, I want you to get the God, get, get my kids saved. I'm going, what's wrong? I'm, in my mind, I'm going, what's wrong with you? You know, yeah. I, when, I, when I had my kids, I was very jealous of them. I would have been happy if somebody, let them out, uh, somebody else led them to the Lord, but I asked God for that privilege of being able to lead my kids to the Lord. I didn't want some Sunday school teacher or pastor to, to get that privilege, you know, because they were my kids. And the, the only thing that I ever regretted is that I didn't baptize my kids. 
And I went to churches where the pastor thought it was he was the only one that could <laughs> baptize. And places where I've had some help and I've encouraged them say, I think dads should have the opportunity to baptize their, their children if they want to, as long as their dads are saved and everything. I think that's, that's an honor that belongs to the dad, not the, not the pastor. About the <laughs> uh, father, fathers are the heads of the spiritual heads of their household, so. Oh, let's get back to it. Wiping out uh, old things, passed away. Um, verse 5. And he said, He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And this new is the same new that's in 2 Corinthians 5 17 when he makes us new creations, brand new, never before seen creations, and he's going to, in the new heaven and earth, make everything new. Which means, even though he may pattern it after the old earth, or may not pattern it after the old earth, it will still be new. New and more than anything out there. And I, I just love that. The, what we will have in heaven is something we can't even really anticipate. Uh, and it says, write these words, for they are true and faithful. And we look at this, and he says, he said, it is done. This done is the same word that he used for it is finished on the cross. It is paid for. It is complete. It no longer needs anything. Everything at that point is done. No more work needs to be done when he gets to the new heaven and earth. Everything is passed. Everything is complete. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to him a th that is a thirst, the fountain of the water of life freely. We think about this. He's the beginning and end. The Alpha and Omega, we would say A to Z in our language. <laughs> uh, you know, everything in between. <laughs> But the beginning and the end, all of time as we know it, is for our benefit as humans. God is outside of our time, time domain. He's outside of, of what we consider time. And, but he covers everything from the beginning to end. And all of our time on earth, from the creation to the, to the destruction at the end of the new creation, he covered all of it. He says, I was there at the beginning. I was there at the end. And you know what? He was there before our beginning. <laughs> and he's going to be there after our end. He is eternal. He was, and we, even when we say eternal, we have a hard time comprehending that. You know, he, and what I say because he's outside of time is that he is with Adam and Eve currently. He is at the end times currently. And he is with us because he is outside of all of this time. Time means nothing to him. It's like us going to the park and coming back. You know, we can go there, we can come back, we can go, we can go really far south and go <laughs> and then turn around and come to the park. You know, you know, he looks at time in that same way. He just wanders through time as if it's, you know, a distance for him. And he's, but he's even beyond that. He's not even wandering through time. He is everywhere. He's, and this is why I say when we think about him, he's bigger than we think about he is. He's stronger than we think he is. He's more knowledgeable. You know, whatever, whatever level we think of, 
And in this case, I think a pretty big God because I've studied as long as I have, and he's even bigger than anything I can think of. Okay? So everything is new. Every, and it says he gives of the fountain of life freely. We want to realize there were two trees in the Garden of Eden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. They chose not to eat of the tree of life. Because remember, God said, after they ate of the tree of knowledge of evil, they need to be kicked out lest they reach their hand out to the tree of life and live forever. So it seems to indicate they never ate of the tree of life. The tree they were supposed to eat from, <laughs> they chose not to. The tree they weren't supposed to eat from, they chose to eat from. And God says, new heaven and earth, I'm going to give you freely the tree of life. Why? Because we've already chosen him. Eternal life that we're going to have. And it's the life with God. In the Hebrew, it uses the word zoe life for, for eternal life. And that is that full, complete life. The life with God. He says, I'm going to give freely of the tree of life. He actually is the tree of life. We know that because he is life. So he's given us freely of himself. Such a precious thing that we have. God living in us, giving us life, joy, peace, happiness, all the stuff that goes with it. Starting from the moment we accept. Never, never get into the thought that the eternal life starts when you die. And I know a lot of people have believed that. Eternal life starts the moment you accept Jesus Christ and he comes into your life and comes into you. You have eternal life from that moment. Eternal life is not something we're looking forward to. Okay? It is something we have right now. We will never die. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when our spirit leaves this body, it kind of leaves it behind. You, know, kind of, you see the movies where the spirit leaves the body. and you know, you know, uh, That is kind of the picture Paul's talking about. It just left the body and, and it goes, stands in front of the Lord and switches, switches into the spiritual dimensions or whatever you want to call it. But it, you go, who you are appears before God immediately. There's not a... There's not, a long time and that, you, that you're soul sleep or anything that some people talk about where you just were asleep until you can show up with God. You are present with God the moment your spirit departs this mortal domain. The Bible, you're either present with God or you're, or you're in hell waiting to be judged. There is, this is, that's actually a good question because people will talk about ghosts and spirits and haunting and everything. There are no souls wandering around this earth, haunting things. There are demons pretending to be souls wandering around and haunting things, but they are, the soul is either with God or in hell waiting to be judged. Okay, The souls do not wander this earth haunting and trying to make amends and all that stuff that, that the world talks about. The scriptures tell us one or the other, which therefore means it's demon activity that is pretending to be something else. So the demons are Satan. Oh, they're part of Satan. They're, they're, they're part, part of, Satan. of his. They're working for Satan. Yeah. 
they followed him in, into judgment, and they are in this world pretending. When, so, when you see some ghost of somebody, it's a demon pretending to be that person. And the demon can know just as much. Uh, the people go, well, they told me things that nobody else could know. Well, the demon was with them most of their life. The demon can tell you anything that wants to know. Uh, so it's, it's not hard <laughs> for these things to pretend. And that's their job, to deceive. And so just always remember, you know, this is a big issue with some people. Well, I saw the ghost of so-and-so. Well, no, you saw a demon pretending to be so-and-so because the scriptures are very clear. You're, when you die, you are either with God or you are in hell waiting to be judged. You're not wandering this earth trying to make amends for what you've done wrong because it's too late. Once you're dead, your decisions that you have made are your decisions. And so the demons pretend to be things. We, and I have no problem with these, all these buildings that are supposedly haunted. They're, they're very much haunted by demons. Uh, demons pretending to be something else. Demons can try to pretend to be your friend. Lucifer pretends to be the friends of people. He's an angel of light. And, you know, is how he appears. And the greatest thing Satan has ever accomplished is to get people to think of him in this ridiculous red suit, long tail, pitchfork with horns on his head. Okay? And the Bible tells us that he appears often as an angel of light. His, his lies, I mean, if you really have ever known a really good liar, okay, if you want to say good in that sense. Somebody who doesn't get caught in, up in their lies because they give 80% truth and 20% lie, you know, and they sound really good. They sound, you know, they eventually get caught. They're always going to trip up because the truth always comes out. But your best lies are these ones that mix just enough lie to be a lie, which is any bit of lie, but you know they sound so good. They, you know, they're a great con artist. You don't. It's hard to, hard to see through them. And this is the way Satan is with us. He does not. He and the demons don't care if we think they're good. They're not out to make our life miserable at times. They just want to keep us from God. Whatever it takes to keep us from God is what they want to do. So Satan, if you want to come to uh, Satan's happy. If you want to come to church and just sit there in church and and get a cold heart and not respond to God, doesn't bother him. You can be the most righteous looking person in the world and he, as long as you don't turn to Christ, he's going to go, you want to be good in the hell? I don't care. You want to be really, really bad in the hell? I don't, he doesn't care. As long as you don't turn to Christ, he'll let you do whatever you want. He'll protect you even. I mean, witches and that whole world are very protected people because of the demons that protect them up to a point. Then they get to the point where the demon wants more from them than they're willing to give. But especially when they're practicing Wicca and white magic, they think that they're doing really good and they're very protected people. The demons don't let anything happen to them because they're following them. It doesn't bother them. You know, they're going to end up in hell and that's what they're, that's what they're here for. But so I'm not saying all, and be, you know, be careful on this, because even if they are bad demons, they may present themselves as a good, friendly demon, you know, a friendly ghost, a hopeful ghost, uh, you know, whatever it is to get you to follow away from God. Like they, they exist. Be careful that you don't believe, because the Bible talks about demons all over. Demon, the demonic world exists. The angelic world exists. Don't fear it. Don't get, don't get paranoid about it because we are protected by God. 
we have a spiritual world and battle going on around us all the time. We can't see it, so we kind of ignore it to a, to a great degree. You know, one of the greatest stories in the Bible is when Elijah has his army surrounding his house and his servants all worried about it. And he says, God, open the eyes of my servants so he can see that those that are with us are more than against us. And his eyes of the servant are open up and he sees the angels that are circling the army that has him circled. You know, and he says, we've got a lot more people. <laughs> and even in the demonic world, in the spiritual world, God has two angels to every one demon. Okay, so we have no problems out there. God is more than able to protect us from all, the, all that, plus he's stronger than them anyway. He created them all. So, you know, we wanna, we're not, I'm not, we're not getting on this to get us afraid or anything, but just be aware there is a demonic activity out there that is trying to draw people away from God. These people who have, that are spiritualists, who have somehow tapped into the, the demonic world, have power because the demon has power. The demon has knowledge. They're able to tell you things that you nobody else knows. Well, of course they know because the demons are there around us all the time as much as the angels were around us. They know everything that we've done and everything that, you know, that we've said. They don't know what we're going to, going to do because they're not future-oriented. Uh, but they know everything that's been said and done around you and that you've said or done because they have seen it and heard it. And therefore, these people get amazed when these, they go to these spiritualists and they tell them all these things that nobody else knows about. Well, they got a demon whispering in their ear telling them what, what to say and they look really like they're tapped into something and they are. And we just want to be careful with it that we don't get ourselves wrapped up in that world because it is important for us to not be wrapped up in that world because we have one who's greater. Uh, the next verse we look at, it says, He that overcomes shall inherit all things. And we've talked what an overcomer is. At the very beginning of this book, we talked about what an overcomer is. It's in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, and it's everybody who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior is an overcomer. Why? Because he overcame for us. <laughs> not because we are an overcomer, not from anything that I have done, but because he is the overcomer, and he lives in me. So we, all we remember, 1 John 5, 4 through 5, is where it defines overcomer. And 5 through 4, 5. Uh-huh. And we'll read it for it. Yeah. I think that's a key word to salvation, too, is overcome. Mm -hmm. <coughs> because I think if you don't overcome, you're not <coughs> Well, here's the definition for overcomer in, that John uses. First John 5, 4 through 5. For wh whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And that believe, again, is a full knowledge of who God is and, and an acceptable knowledge. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are an overcomer. Whether we feel like it, we're an overcomer. If we don't feel like it, we're an overcomer. When we fail, we're an overcomer. <laughs> when, we, when we get it right, we're an overcomer. And that's usually when we think we're an overcomer is when we get it right. So so we, First John 4, 5. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. 
Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, basically that you've accepted him as your Savior. He is your Lord and your, and your Savior. Okay, that's what it is, an overcomer. We, once we accept Christ, we are overcomers. Okay? So if I were to continue smoking and not overcome that obstacle... God still says you're an overcomer because it's in Him. And this is where we learn to have faith rest. We rest in what God says. And we live who He says we are. When we are saved, and we've covered this before, there's three aspects of salvation. The moment we get saved, God says we are perfect. He justifies us. He says, because of Jesus Christ, you are perfect. Decreed from heaven that we have our flesh crucified, we are clothed in Christ, our righteousness doesn't mean anything. And even if we want to try to depend on our righteousness, Isaiah 64, 6 tells us it's filthy rags. So, you know, I'll tell you one thing. I don't want to stand in before God in my own righteousness. You know, can you imagine going before some great dignitary and your, you know, your, some filthy rags that you pulled out of the, uh, you know, out of your, uh, you know, that you worked on the car and then you worked under the house and then you, you know, uh, you know, got all you know, blood and oiled up, and then you're going to go stand in front of, say, the President of the United States and say, hey, look how good I look. And God is saying, our righteousness is filthy rags. And that word in Hebrew literally means medical leftover rags filled with pus and blood and, and disease. <laughs> That's our righteousness. The best we can do is, appears to God that way. But when we're saved, God says, you're perfect. I'm putting on my son's righteousness on you. Now we know we're not perfect. We know that we're not. But then he starts stage two. He starts sanctifying us. He starts making us who he said we are. We're going to spend the rest of our life being sanctified. And sanctification is not something that I do myself. It is God who sanctifies me. He is the one that does the work to work out the sin out of my life. When I am ready to just surrender it, he'll crucify it and he'll live and he'll cleanse that area. I've said it over and over. Walking the Christian life is really simple if we just let God do his part. If I'm sitting there struggling and fighting and, and working to make something good, it's not going to matter anyway because it's only as good as I can discipline myself. God says, let me just crucify it. Let me crucify it, get rid of it, and bring in life. And the last part of salvation is the part we're all looking forward to. That's the day we die physically or get, or get raptured, and God says, okay, I'm going to make you what I said you were going to be, and it's called glorification. He makes us perfect like he said we were perfect from the beginning, and, and all of our life we spend getting sanctified becoming more like him, but it's him that does the job. If I'm striving to get perfect, it's not going to work. It's not going to work because it's my flesh trying to perfect itself. My flesh is, is stinking and rotting and not going to work. The flesh must be crucified. God lives through me, 
And because he's living through me, I'm becoming more like him. And because I become more like him, I follow his, his rules. <laughs> because his rules are based in who he is. Okay? And we've talked about this, and this came from the Truth Project. God's rules are not capricious. He didn't just say, well, should people lie or not lie and flip a coin to see which one was going to come up. It was like, lying is bad because God is truth. Murder is bad because we are created in his image and killing is against his image. You know, wanting what other people in for lust and not being satisfied in who we are in him is not being like he is. The more we become like God because of him being in our life, crucifying our flesh, the more we will obey his laws, not out of force, not out of des even desire. It's just because God lives who he is out of us. And this makes Christianity so much easier because it is a relationship with God that changes us. It's not the religion of piling on a bunch of rules and say, obey all these rules and you're going to be okay. And that's what religion is. And that's what many churches do, unfortunately, even Christian churches. They pile a bunch of laws on you and say, follow these laws. If you want to be a good Christian, do these 25 things or 300 things or whatever it might be, and you're going to be a good Christian. No, you'll be, a, you'll be somebody who is righteous in your own eyes and and usually self-righteous and, and judgmental of other people because they're not as good a Christian as you. They don't follow all the rules you do. And God is saying, let me crucify you. Let me learn, teach you to love. Let me teach you to be more like me because I'm indwelling in, in you. In the Old Testament, it, it, over and over it says that we will be like what we worship. And that's kind of scary because they were talking usually about idols in that case. You, if you're worshiping these idols, you are going to be like what you're worshiping. And they were worshiping gods of sex, gods of power, gods of you know, all kinds of different gods of whatever. And people would become what they worshiped. We will become what we worship. If we're worshiping God, we will become more like him because of that relationship and that indwelling with him. And that's where you become more like him. This is, and it's so easy to surrender and let him crucify. Let him crucify you. It and, is and people will say, well, I just don't understand it. Release. <laughs> Give up and surrender. And then it'll be, people, well, how do you surrender? You surrender just like you would in real life. If you had the police outside your door saying, come out with your hands up, you have a choice. You can come out with your hands up, or, or you, you can come, come out with guns blazing, or you can just try to stay in until they force you out. And God is saying, surrender. It's an act of my will to say, God, do with me as you want. That's a hard prayer. Because that gives up your right to do whatever you want. It gives up your right. He makes it easy because he gives you the strength. But, and he's going to give you the grace to go through whatever it is he wants you to go the through. Trial, yeah. you know, many people have had to give up their life for God. And they've said, if that's what you want. Maybe you have to give up your health for God for some reason. And God says, and you need to be able to say, that's what I want. One of the greatest examples I can think of is Johnny Erickson Tata, who may, who may or may not know, but when she was 17 years old, she was diving in the Chesapeake Bay off of a raft and, and hit a sandbar and broke her neck and was quadri quadriplegic. She prayed for the first couple of years to get, get healed. 
And if she had gotten healed, she would have been a miracle. She would have been paraded around for a few, few years and, and uh, you know, look at this great miracle. God never healed her of that. But God has used her to build this great ministry that reaches out to the handicapped around the world with the aid they need and with the gospel. Is she still alive? She's still alive. And uh, she has a program where they rebuild wheelchairs and take them to the, these poor countries and give them to these people for free. And all of a sudden, they've got mobility that they would never have had because their governments don't care for them or don't, don't, you know, don't care whether they're getting around or not. Would she have had that ministry if she had gotten healed? Very doubtful. And she says the same thing. She goes, if I had been healed, none of this would have happened. Because she understands that she would have gone back to her athletics and, and forgotten about the, the disabled. But because of what she went through and because of what God didn't do for her, you know, she had a great ministry. And every once in a while, she'll get letters from some idiot Christian who says, well, if you really had enough faith, you'd be healed. You know, that wasn't God's plan for her life. Now, is it his plan for everybody to not get healed? No. Is it his plan for everybody to be healed? No. God can heal. He did heal her. Well, he healed her in many ways, spiritually. And she's had many healings, you know, and she says the same thing. I've been healed in many ways and, and drawn close to God because of, of this activity that she probably would never have drawn close to. Now, does that mean everybody has to go through this to be there? No. That's why well, I always go through our own. But well, we go through our own. That's why I always say on anything, it's a reason for everything. Yep. And we've got to keep, we've got to keep it in, in focus that God knows what he's doing. God has a plan. He knows what he's doing. He knows why he's doing it. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean that God doesn't understand it. And this is why I love Romans 8.28. All things work together for good. Who's good? His good. You know, it may not even be good for me, but it works out for his good in the long run. Because he knows what's best. Because he knows what's best. He knows how to motivate you to, to be, and he knows how to work the testimony that you're going to have from this. So it's very important that we keep in mind being faithful. He knows what he's doing. He knows what's good. Job, when he was going through his trials, did not think they were good when his health was taken away and his kids died and all of his, all of his wealth was taken away. I, I can guarantee he was sitting there looking like, God, you know, this, doesn't, you know, this doesn't make sense. I don't know why you're doing this. But you know, I'm, you know, he said, naked I came into this world, naked I'll go out. You know, it's, he had some faith even though he didn't understand any of it. And he believed in a prosperity gospel. When you read carefully what he said, he really believed in the prosperity gospel that we think is new today. You know, because he was going, his friends all came back with the same thing. And basically, his answer was, yes, I know that you don't get judged if you're doing right. I, yes, I know that you don't lose everything if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're doing the right things. You know, he had a prosperity gospel message in his life. Do right and get blessed. <laughs> if you're if you're if you're rich if you're rich, it's because you were doing what God what God wanted you to do. That's and you read his answers very carefully, and you see that's exactly what he said. Yeah, they, you know they accused him of you know you wouldn't be this way if you hadn't been a terrible sinner. He's going, yes, I know what you're saying is true, but and we need to keep that in our mind. God is going to do with us what He wants to do. And sometimes pain and suffering is a way to give a testimony. And we, if you want the, another example, look what Jesus did. He came for the purpose of 
pain and suffering for our sins. And that was God's will. That was the Father's will for Jesus to pay that price. And he willingly did it. And, you know, if you wanted to follow the prosperity gospel message, Jesus was really bad <laughs> to have had that much, pen that much penalty. But it wasn't. That was the plan. It was the plan he had from the beginning before they created everything. The Father and he and the Spirit decided that this is what it was going to cost to get us back. Yeah. We want to be careful. Maybe God's given us pain so that we can be the testimony for, to somebody else or have a heart to work with somebody else that we wouldn't have, wouldn't have desired to work with for, for whatever reason. Maybe we're just so stubborn we needed the pain and the suffering to, to, to come to him. Yeah. Many of the guys that I talked to in the prison, they've, they've come to that conclusion. God had to put me here because it was the only thing that would break me <laughs> enough to come to him. And I've heard that testimony from a number of the men who are you know, coming to Christ and understanding what it took to break them. And you hear that and you're going, That's the scripture. that is a scriptural answer. You know, you know, maybe you were stubborn and couldn't do this and this is what it took. You know, God will do God will do what it takes to break us. And many people who are in drugs and alcohol have to hit rock bottom, and I'm talking about rock bottom, lose everything before they'll turn away from their drugs and alcohol. And God says, I know what it takes. You may think your life has been ruined, but if that'll bring you back to, back to him, then that's what he's going to use. Now, hopefully we're not that stubborn and we don't need that, but you know, he will do what it takes to break us. And whatever that is, you know, for somebody who's an organizer and a planner, God will mess up all of their plans every time until they finally say, I'll do what God wants. And he did that to me because I'm an organizer, a planner, I'm an administrator. And he stood in opposition to me for, for a while, you know, saying, you're not, you're not working your own way out of these problems. And finally gave up. <laughs> said, God, I give up. <laughs> and he fixed all the problems. <laughs> when I quit trying to do it myself. Because otherwise it would have been the, the testimony would be, look what I did. <laughs> My plans worked. <laughs> and, but I had to say, I give up. What I was and who I am as a manager and administrator, I had to say, I'm going to put it in God's hands and say, okay, God, you do it. Is being an administrator and a planner a bad thing? Not necessarily, but when you're trying to do everything your way and not bring God into it, it's a terrible thing. You know, and God will say, I'm going to touch you. I'm going to fix it. It's going to be me who makes these changes. And we need to be able to release our will and give up. And God will do whatever it takes to do that. Because he's going to say, it's got to be me. Everything has to be him working through us to stand before him. Because much of what we have done in our life even if it's good, quote-unquote unquote, good, will burn at the Bema seat because it was done in my own flesh, and flesh won't stand before God. And I've said this many times. You may do something that for you is wood and it's going to burn up, but somebody else may receive it as gold and silver and be rewarded by it because it motivated them to follow God. And it's scary for some pastors and teachers that, you know, will say, you know, who did a good job teaching and people grew and, and for them, they got all this treasure from it. 
and because it came from your own flesh, it burns in, in that person's life. So something that is done in the flesh can still touch people because the Spirit can make it ha anything happen. And so we want to always remember, we want our flesh crucified, and we want to live in His power. And when we release and we surrender to Him, things happen that you can't even imagine had happened. We've all hopefully been there, where we've seen the work of God when we've released to let Him work. And when you watch Him work, it's wonderful. Great things happen. You see people's lives getting touched. And when you're doing it in yourself, you know, you may see a couple things happen, but nothing is really happening of great value because it's you doing it. And God is saying, release. Let him live. And this is why it's a relationship with him. A relationship with God. And you watch God work. You listen to God speak. You listen, get into his word, and you find out how he wants you to react to things. When you learn to love people, you know, it's wonderful, scary, <laughs> hard. You know, worst thing about when you love somebody is watching them make bad decisions and not, not make decisions for God. And you're going, oh, I still love you, but you're making such a terrible decision. And you don't know, even know, sometimes know how to, how to express that to them. And, you, and then God's saying, just keep loving them. And you get just a tiny flavor of what God does with us when we make bad decisions and how it breaks his heart. When you start to learn to lo truly love, we really start to understand how heartbroken God is on, on so many issues. Even in our own lives where we make the wrong decisions so often. But can you imagine the heartbreak that God has with the lost world who are constantly making bad decisions and he's just wanting them to come to him. He's holding the gift out and saying, just accept my son and you're going to come. And they make decisions not to come to him. We learn to be, learn forgiveness. You know, for, for, forgiveness is really hard to do at first. You know, a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to forgive them until they're sorry. I am so glad God didn't do that to us. <laughs> because I would have never been sorry without him providing it in the first place. I'm not, you know, and then we talk about somebody because, you know, I've forgiven them, but I'm going to make sure they, they feel the pain. God takes our, when he forgives us, he takes our sins and puts it as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't think, remember it anymore. He doesn't talk about it. He doesn't throw it back out in our face. You know, forgiveness is tough. We know the day of our death when we stand in front of his throne. We don't, he's going to bring it all back. We won't stand before his throne. We stand before the Bema seat, and all he's going to do there is judge our, judge our work, the Bema. Bema. Christians stand at the Bema seat and will be... Our works will be cast into the fire to see whether we did it in the flesh or, the, or, the, or in his strength. Even at the white throne judgment, it's not the sins that are thrown in people's face. It is the rejection of Jesus Christ that's going to be thrown in their face and not their sins because the sins are covered. The rejection of Jesus is what's going to be there. All right, let's, sorry I went very long, but we're going to pray. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you. We ask that you give us a wonderful time as we go out. Teach us to surrender to you. Help crucify our flesh. Help us make great decisions in you. In Jesus' name, amen.